0: Patrick O'Shaughnessy is a Principal and Portfolio Manager at O'Shaughnessy Asset Management. All opinions expressed by Patrick and podcast guests are solely their own opinions and do not reflect the opinion of O'Shaughnessy Asset Management. This podcast is for informational purposes only and should not be relied upon as a basis for investment decisions. Clients of O'Shaughnessy Asset Management may maintain positions in the securities discussed in this podcast. This week, we dive into the world of venture capital. My guest is Craig Shapiro, founder and CEO of the New York-based Collaborative Fund, which was an early investor in companies like Lyft, Kickstarter, and Reddit. Craig's mission at the Collaborative Fund is to find and invest in companies that are both better for you and better for the world, a unique combination which leads to very interesting investments. One of the great things about getting older is the ability to judge people's character faster and more accurately. Within five minutes, Craig made a very strong impression on me as a person. You can tell that he is both humble and kind, but also driven and incisive. This is a special person and a special guest on the show. Like the Ted Seides episode on hedge funds, this conversation on venture capital is a great high-level introduction to alternative investing. You can find show notes for this episode at InvestorFieldGuide.com forward slash Shapiro. Please enjoy our conversation. I read a post by yours which has really inspired me, which is the one about roots and the importance of personal roots in sort of the outcomes in your life and your professional career. I would love to start by hearing a little bit about your personal roots and how they sprouted what has become the Collaborative Fund.
1: Yeah, well, um, you know, my, my grandfather was an immigrant uh, to the United States. He, he came over from Russia in the luggage section of a boat. Um, you know, one of these stories where uh, you know, he came in into Ellis Island, lived in the Lower East Side at a very young age, never had a formal education beyond, beyond elementary school, and, and started out with a push cart. You know, he was selling fruit and produce on a cart and somehow made his way down to Washington, D.C., got married and raised my father and his two brothers above a small grocery store. And um, you know, that story of just kind of lifting himself up by, by his bootstraps and, and you know, creating a life for him and his wife and my father and, and his two brothers is kind of the American dream in its truest form. And it just inspired me in so many ways. I mean, it's, it's just incredible to, to have thought about all of the challenges that he faced. And in talking to him uh, before he passed, you know one of the things that i feel like he passed down to myself and to the rest of our family was just the belief in in kind of working together that you you can't go alone and that was that was part of the thinking behind collaborative fund was you know kind of supporting people who were just getting started who against all odds were were trying to do something positive and and helping them and capital is, you know, in essence, it's, it is the most universal kind of resource, not certainly not the only, and maybe not even the most important, but it's, it's universally needed when starting a business. And so that, that kind of inspired me, you know, as, as a, as kind of a mechanism for, for supporting entrepreneurs. Um, And I I think about that often, you know, I don't want to belabor the point, but I do, I do feel like that Background um, and and your roots are both a metaphor, but also you know literal translation of like what we're what we're growing here, and that you know that seed blossomed into you know I think a, 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 a in, in my case a, a wonderful family, and uh, you know I'm hoping that with Collaborative Fund you know we're, we're able to kind of build a similar organization using
0: some of the same principles and values. Hmm. That's a really, really neat story and leads well into, I think, maybe I'll call it your mantra, um, which is this kind of dual-sided filter that you're looking for, I think, in businesses, maybe even in founders, um, which is better better for me and and better for the world. Maybe you could describe how you got to that sort of Venn diagram where you're trying to hunt in the middle or the intersection of those two things. You know, it's funny because I feel as though, you know, the world –
1: the world kind of bifurcated those two things. Um, you kind had, of had organizations that were really focused on uh, doing good in the world. Um, they were mostly nonprofit organizations. You might imagine something like the Red Cross, uh, and, and it fit on one end of the spectrum. And, and on the opposite end of the spectrum, you had organizations whose sole purpose was to generate as, as best financial returns as possible for their shareholders shareholders, something like Coca-Cola. And and it was you know it was very clear and distinct, and I feel like culturally, the the world has kind of migrated uh, somewhere in between those two ends of the spectrum. When you look at I think the leading organizations today, they fall somewhere in between those two. Um, and so you know they, they if you look at you know there's there's a nonprofit called Kiva, um, which does micro loans. I you know I think. They, if you look at how that organization's run, it would almost surprise you. You know, it was, it was started by a former PayPal employee and, and, and a Stanford business uh, student, um, and it's it's run almost like a, a for profit business in a lot of ways. Uh, you know, if, you, if you're sitting in the, in their boardroom, I think you'd be surprised. It it, it it may look and smell different than what you would imagine of a nonprofit. And I think the same holds true in some public organizations or for-profit organizations. So my hunch is not having ever attended a Starbucks board meeting. But I think Howard Schultz does talk about what Starbucks' role is, both in the community as well as kind of a a global citizen. And so I think, you know, the world has kind of shifted in this direction that it's not kind of as black and white as the Red Cross or Coca-Cola. But ironically, our financial markets haven't really kind of shifted alongside culture, mm-hmm. and so you still we have these, uh, you know, somewhat antiquated financial systems and metrics that are still measuring and rewarding kind of an old school system, and so you know I think that creates an opportunity, mm-hmm. um, and not just for collaborative fund, but I think for a lot of investors uh, across all asset classes. Uh, to invest in kind of organizations that, that kind of fit somewhere between those two ends of the spectrum. Mm-hmm. And I, I, I genuinely believe in our, our kind of the core of our investment thesis is that the businesses that get that right, that balance uh, right between those two are the ones that are going to generate the greatest financial returns over the next decade and beyond. And probably Uh, returns beyond just
0: financial too, right? Absolutely. A stakeholder return instead of a shareholder return. That's right. That's absolutely right. It's interesting how you you mentioned Coke um, and its, its sugary product and how I think financial markets are, you know, they lag. And one of the things that's a really popular topic these days is ESG investing, mm-hmm. which is it sounds great. It's very hard to implement, mm-hmm. um, especially you know in an index fund or um, at the you know the pension level. Mm-hmm. It's a very romantic notion, mm-hmm. but as a passive secondary investor, it, it's hard. Mm-hmm. And so I am fascinated by. I'd love to hear more about your process for finding these businesses because there's something horribly impersonal about mm-hmm. entering a ticker and clicking buy. And you're you're an investor, I guess, but you're really just a buyer. Mm-hmm. Um, maybe you're affecting the company's cost of capital or something by your buy or sell decision, but you're not making direct investment of not only your money but your time. Yeah. Um, so obviously, the venture world is much more hands-on. Yes. So. Everyone's got their funnel, right? There's some wide swath of opportunity that narrows down into whatever you actually own. I would love to hear about kind of the stages of that from your perspective. How you sort, how you find things to begin with. We'll talk. I'd love to talk a lot about evaluating people and ideas, and then kind of once you invest, how you how you manage, how you what you do beyond just uh, you know a dollar check. Sure. Um, so maybe we'll start at the top with the top of the funnel and how do you how do you find how do opportunities come to you? How does deal flow? Uh, Work here in New York City for you, kind of away from the venture, the venture epicenter out west.
1: Yeah, yeah, you know, venture is interesting in that it's the only asset class that I'm aware of where the underlying assets don't yet exist. So when you're going out to raise a venture fund, it's a very strange kind of mental exercise because you're convincing people to invest in things that don't yet exist in most cases, and I think that's you know just like factually different than investing in public equities or you know bonds or yeah that you you may have a, an opinion as to you know whether commodities are going to go up or down but one thing is for sure they exist <laughs> And this is it's a strange exercise to go out and kinda convince people to invest in a fund, you know, for things that don't don't yet exist. But if you look historically, that's kinda worked out, um, in some cases. And it's you know, it's it the particularly in, in the US, the kind of entrepreneurial spirit and just new business creation has been, I think, a driving force of our economy and so you know and and you know lo and behold if you if you get it right if you if you're able to invest in some businesses very early on in their evolution it can it can pay tremendous you know kind of rewards so so the risk reward profile is is interesting but the also just the tenor of how you raise that capital is interesting you know for us we have several sources of deal flow like how do we find stuff one is just kind of you know I, I like to think somewhat unique to who Collaborative Fund is, and, and this goes back to our roots. And so, in selecting kind of who our limited partners are, who our investors are, they're actually a great source of deal flow. So you know we have a number of of uh, entrepreneurs who have invested uh, in Collaborative Fund, folks like Chuck Templeton who founded Open Table, or Scott Heiferman who founded Meetup. Uh, Ron Gonan, who founded Recycle Bank, Chad Hurley, who founded YouTube, and, and folks like, like these individuals that, you know, see a lot of deal flow themselves. So, you know, in the case of Ron Gonan, you know, subsequent to, to Recycle Bank, he became the recycling czar under Mayor Bloomberg. And so really any startup that is in the kind of, you know, waste management, recycling kind of sandbox um, you know, looks to Ron as somebody who really knows the space, is well-connected. And so a lot of times he's seeing deal flow um, that he's not able to, to parse or evaluate himself, um, and, and in some cases will share that with us. And so our, our limited partners are a really rich source of deal flow because oftentimes their time and energy is spent a bit at a later stage, right? So they're deploying uh, larger amounts of capital, into more established businesses the stuff that's really messy just getting started out of a garage somewhere you know they they may not have the time to evaluate every single one of those opportunities and so collaborative fund actually serves as a a wonderful kind of uh, almost like an outsource for a lot of that early stage deal flow the second um, and frankly this has become an even richer source uh, as as the fund um, has aged a bit is our actual portfolio. So you know, we've now invested in you know over fifty companies, and and those companies themselves spawn companies. Uh, you know, when, when one of the co-founders decides it's time to move on and start something new, or the VP of engineering wants to start his or her own business, um, and so we have this you know ever expanding pool of talent. Um, that just you know continuously kind of refreshes itself, so that's how that 's how we find the bulk of our investment opportunities so that's
0: clearly an edge right where it seems to me in my very limited knowledge of the venture world that that sources of deal flow is maybe one of the most important aspects of the firm um, and so so dig a little bit more into the the first one so you have these these great people, these limited partner investors themselves how how did those relationships get cultivated yeah. because that's obviously the most important step. It's sort of, think about it sort of like a you know a cold call versus a, an extremely warm lead. Yeah. Um and on the sales side, how did, how did you meet these people? What was your background to get these limited partners? Yeah, together? you know, there's there's two things that I think are important
1: there. One is uh you know prior to doing collaborative fund I was an entrepreneur um and so through business I was able to build relationships with some of these folks. Um which I just had the kind of good fortune of bumping into them, doing deals with them, working together with them. In some ca- in some cases, working on opposing sides, but building a, a mutual respect. And so I think, you know, not coming, ironically, not coming from the investment world, but more as an entrepreneur and, and battling heroes, it out. Yeah, yeah I think, um, you know, I was able to form uh, some of those relationships. But the other, which I think is, you know, certainly not you know, only applicative to collaborative fund, but I do feel like is somewhat unique is our our brand and our values are somewhat self-selecting. and so let's let's use Scott Heiferman, founder of Meetup. I think even though our relationship wasn't super close, I think he saw what we were trying to do and just believed in it, I think the underlying mission served as a, a, a wonderful beacon, if you will, or a magnet to attract the type of people who could be value added in the efforts that we're, we're pursuing. And I, I think that's really important because I, I look at so many financial managers and they, they choose either their own name. Right, so it's you know Smith and Associates, or they choose just kind of an innocuous you know Ridgecrest, uh, you know mountain, you know mountain summit partners. That really, you know, I I heard you know I was with some hedge fund managers. One of them was telling me, you know, he chose the name of his firm based on the street that he grew up on. Very common, Um, yeah. And and I think that's there's something really I, I we I love that. But I, I think you miss the element of that beacon, right? So nobody's saying, you know what, Ridgecrest, really you, know, to be a I got, I, you know, that's something I want to get behind. Uh, but I think Collaborative Fund is kind of a stake in the ground that says, you know, we believe that essentially, you know, collective action and resources are going to be a competitive edge in the for-profit kind of venture world and i think that that's that's a that's a way of of life that's a kind of a, a thesis on where things are going and and is just attractive and not just to the sources of capital but frankly the same holds true for entrepreneurs um as well as partners and media and you name it it's like it's a very it's your brand is
0: we take that very seriously so yeah, yeah. Tell me a little bit about your entrepreneurial roots. So what was the, what was the business or businesses that, that you started?
1: Yeah so, uh, so I was involved with, with two in particular. Um, one was a, a
0: startup in the mobile technology space. Um, For those that can 't see in the room where we are there 's a, a cool time series of cell phones that looks i don 't know if it 's chronological or not, but definitely some some what now look like ancient devices, even though they 're only ten years old yeah
1: yeah it was it was a startup called Proteus and it you know it, it they were we were building applications very very early on in the mobile ecosystem and so you can imagine kind of text based marketing uh, you know some, some of the things that we did were you know, voting on live television. Um, so during sports programs, you know, who do you think is going to be the MVP? And, and even you know during awards shows and, and those types of things. Obviously, American Idol kind of blew that whole that that whole kind of sector uh, up in a, in a large way in the U.S. Um, and that that business, we ended up uh, partnering with HBO. And, and doing kind of their, as their exclusive mobile partner. So we built games for Sex and the City and Sopranos and Ringtones and, and the like. Um, and and that, that business ended up getting acquired at the end of 2005. And then subsequent to that, I worked at a, a media company called Good Magazine. Um, and Good Magazine is, is an organization that, that celebrates individuals' Uh, businesses and nonprofits that are pushing the world forward mm-hmm. and actually the talk about deal flow. yeah I, you know that I, I think the experience there was informative and useful on a number of levels, and ironically very complementary to the experience at at the mobile business uh, so you know without without kind of boring you with the details. Uh, the, the mobile business was bootstrapped. Um, we, we really, you know, we didn't raise much outside capital. And so we, we kind of had to figure out a business model that allowed us to, to keep the lights on and, and grow our business organically. Um, whereas Good Magazine was started by a guy named Ben Goldhirsch, um, And ben, ben, Ben's father founded Inc. Magazine. And, and so Ben had had resources to actually invest in the business and, and we were able to kind of grow without you know kind of bootstrapping the business and and having the experience of both of those efforts I think was was very valuable right so I look at you know our investments today and knowing when to kind of focus on your unit economics and you know how to build a budget and where to cut burn and how to build a team that's aligned around spending and uh, and And all of the kind of core financial metrics is is critical, but also knowing when to kind of invest in the business ahead of where your balance sheet can and knowing how to utilize outside capital um, is also very important. and so you know those two experiences were super valuable kind of to the experience that I have today and I would layer on you know the 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 just the ethos and the the kind of the sensibility behind good magazine and certainly Ben and Casey and Max and, and the whole team there, you know, just the, the, the thinking was inspirational to some of the stuff that we're doing at collaborative on.
0: So cool. The whole story really makes me think of to use maybe a venture since we're talking venture to use a, a startup kind of idea that you want to gain as wide a berth, you know, users, um, their attention as possible, maybe before monetizing, Um, which is how a lot of these massive firms have been successful. Of course, there's lots that haven't been successful too, but it's a really compelling idea that there's, you can build like a, like an exponential, almost like cumulative advantage before putting it to use. I even think of this podcast as an example. I, I've been friends with Morgan for years and if I hadn't been friends with Morgan, I wouldn't be sitting here. You know Um, it's a, it's a neat idea that you just want to Good is an appropriate name for the magazine. Just just do good, cultivate good relationships, and then you, who knows what will happen. Um, really really neat idea. I love the idea of LPs as as roots themselves that, that really shape the, the fund. So maybe we can get into that middle part now, which is, okay, you've got um, lots of stuff coming your way. Uh, early stage, I don't know if you focus more on seed or on, on, on A or B. Uh, maybe we can get into that. But how do you... What's the evaluation look like? How do you um, do you have a checklist? do you have you know consistent repeatable methods for evaluating either the founders or the ideas? which one's more important? I love this middle stage. so maybe maybe talking through how you how you evaluate opportunities. yeah,
1: so uh, so I guess maybe starting out we we do we kind of focus in or around the seed stage. And so uh, you know we're not. So dogmatic that we won't look at things that are slightly uh, beyond seed but our, our favorite is kind of right when it's getting started um, it's it's the most creative it's the messiest uh, you know and it's it's the most formative and so that's that's kind of where we aim most of our efforts um, you know and in terms of how we evaluate you know we do we do a lot of the kind of traditional work that you know, what, what I would imagine most venture capitalists do. We, we evaluate, you know, they're business savvy. We evaluate kind of the business model and the size of the market and the competitive landscape and a lot of the, you know, kind of checklists that one might imagine. But I think the part that I enjoy most and that I think is somewhat unique to Collaborative Fund goes back to that original investment thesis around kind of this intersection between... Kind of, you know, what's what is best for me and what's best for the world, um, and I think that that's an, that's a really that tension is can be transformative, um, and and I do I credit some of this to to Ben Goldhirsch from, from Good Magazine. He he shared with me a term called the villain test, which I just I, I hold dear. I love, which is you know, there's this notion of doing good. Uh, and and what what 's best for the world um, is something that I think a lot of people are engaging with like it 's a it 's a sensibility that has be ha, has emerged a lot over the last decade but it I think as it relates to investing, if not done well it can it can really impair returns for cash that 's right um, because We're human beings and by nature, we're self-interested. And so finding the balance between what's best for me and what's best for the world is really where we like to evaluate startups, right? So there's a couple of examples that I give that kind of illustrate this tension. You know, one, one might be in the transportation space, right? So you've got the Ford Mustang or uh, or you know Ferrari, right? So it it kind of scratches that itch of like sexy, bold, fast. Like you step into that car and you feel like your the whole aura changes. I mean, it just is. It's so dominant, right? But you have the Toyota Prius and stepping into a prius gives you a, a different set of feelings and emotions like you feel good about that decision you feel like you're a part of a community that kind of cares about the world and and so those two inherently unfortunately are at, at odds until an entrepreneur like elon musk comes along and creates something like tesla which kind of allows for both of those emotions to to exist right so tesla is every bit as fast beautiful the industrial design is world class but it's also electric and so it, it it allows you to kind of you know scratch the itch of like feeling dominant and bold and sexy but also caring about what goes on in the world and about your community and i think that's where the transformative kind of Businesses are going to be born is at that intersection, and and you can see it, and the returns from that, and um, and so you know that's what we really look for is like, is this too heavily skewed towards one of those ends of the spectrum, right? So if we have an entrepreneur that comes in and they're talking about, you know, they're creating a product that, gosh, is this going to make the world a better place? And you know, this this sweatshirt is, you know, it's it's made with you know cotton that is you know fair trade and and you know the the, the you know f- all of the kind of you know better for the world metrics but i look at the sweatshirt and think you know i wouldn't be caught dead in that thing like i'd be embarrassed to wear it mm. it doesn't that then it doesn't work as, as much as my heart would want to support it yeah that's just not what we do at Collaborative Fund. Whereas if somebody comes in and they are at the other end of the spectrum, right? Like, look at this sweater. It's so beautiful. The way that it sits on your shoulders and it, it makes you look proud and sexy and, you know. But you when ask the, them about... The animals died. It yeah, happen. exactly. <laughs> then, so it's, it, it's kind of finding that balance. And I don't know if that's helpful, but that's really how it we is. evaluate startups is... Is around kind of that tension.
0: I love the, the idea of a villain test, right, to keep yourself honest. I heard a funny expression one time where, um, as you move down the body from head to heart to groin, the profit margins go up. Um, <laughs> I like and, that. And, and yeah. I think that that's you know the Tesla example is is a good one. Do you have a uh, maybe a portfolio company now that you could use as an example uh, or that exemplifies this kind of intersection? That's that's that gets it gets both right.
1: Yeah, you know. Um, I think there's a couple that immediately popped to mind. I think Kickstarter is one, mm. you know, where, you know, selfishly, you know, people need capital for their creative projects. Sure. Um, whether it's Where did a, you invest in Kickstarter? We were, we were a, a, one of the earliest investors in Kickstarter. Um, so it was probably around 2010. And just, you know, the idea that, you know, again, kind of stepping back to this kind of collective effort um, it was so clear that having multiple stakeholders lift up kind of creative projects was just a, a wonderful way to transform that. And you know, pr- prior to Kickstarter, you know, something like the National Endowment of the Arts and applying for a grant, you know, was was really the the sole means of of trying to accomplish that, or asking friends and family. Um, and and with Kickstarter, it kind of opened opened things up in, in a way that like. You know, I, I you know I remember when when Kickstarter was first getting started. Subsequent to our investment, even some of our own investors were saying, "Who in their right mind would give money to a project to get nothing? You know, no tangible reward, right?" So you, you're telling me you're going to give money to an entrepreneur who's creating a independent film or a new product but yet you get no equity in that product you get no financial benefit it's just you're you're kind of like contributing to it that seems crazy and it's it in fact not only did it work i mean they've now you know over 2 billion dollars has has gone on kickstarter and so it's uh, has been raised on kickstarter so it's you know it 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 clearly scratches an itch both from you know what's what's you know best for me as an individual kind of enabling me to, to achieve my potential, but also this broader community of feeling like they're contributing and lifting somebody up. Another that I want, I, I, you know, that I think is, is, uh, very different from Kickstarter. Um, a more recent investment is in a food company called ripple foods. And oh, they make the milk. Cakes? Yes, yeah, that's so right. My
0: son has a dairy allergy, so I've heard it. Right oh really? There. Yeah.
1: So I think, you know, food is a very interesting one because it's, it's universal and it's, uh, it's consumable and it's uh, it's something that everybody can relate to right so so ripple has a number of benefits right if you if you go back to those kind of different buckets and you think about like well how is ripple foods better for the world you know they're using peat protein to create a, a dairy alternative uh, a milk alternative uh, so ripple uses a fraction of the water and resources that dairy milk uses, and and even more so, uh, in addition to using significantly less water and resources than a lot of the other dairy-free uh, milk alternatives, so almond milk, cashew milk, other other uh, milk alternatives, it just is less resource-intensive. Um, so it's it's just better environmentally. Just hands down. It also happens to be better nutritionally, right? So it's, it's got more more protein than almond milk or, or the other kind of nut-based milks. And so it, it checks a lot of boxes in terms of like better for the world, right? It uses less resources, uh, it, 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 it's higher in nutritional value. And, and at scale, it can, it can even be less expensive. And so, so it checks a lot of boxes. But guess what? It tastes better. If it doesn't taste good, it doesn't work. And so, you know, if it, that's, that is in its clearest sense. Like, if you drink the milk and it just tastes better, then it, it's that Tesla example. It's like, even if you want to be using less water and less resources and more environmentally friendly and more sustainable, if it doesn't pass the villain test, forget it. Because it's, the, the, market, the market size for people that are willing to be sacrificial to do the right thing, there is a market that exists there, by the way, but it's very small. Right. Um, but the market size of people who kind of want to do the right thing but not at the sacrifice of what's better for them, their self-interest, is massive
0: and growing. Have you read um, Spent by Jeffrey Miller? Mm-hmm. Oh, my God. So this book is going to blow your mind. It is like an uh, evolutionary psychology look at why, you know, why we basically why we behave the way we do as consumers. Mm -hmm. And there's this sort of, he doesn't use this, this dichotomy, but I I've taken it away from the book, which is this like looks good or feels good kind of dichotomy where looks good is kind of signaling. So it's the, the Ferrari that, that tells women something about your sexuality or whatever. Um, the the feels good is just selfish, right? That you just you buy or something because it's just it's just better, it's just good, and so it's the, maybe the villain test is this, it captures both, right? That it's you can as long as it does something, either looks good or feels good. It's uh, what a what a neat test. I love that. Are there negative screens? Um, things that let's say they pass the villain test. Um, things about founders or ideas. Um, that that would cause you to pass. That could be something as simple as you know you're not going to invest in another milk company. Um, I, I love negative screens because sometimes I think they're even better than than things to look for. So anything. Yeah, you yeah, to... yeah. Actually, so the thing that immediately
1: comes to mind um, when asking that is kind of the origin of the idea or the business, and the negative screen for for me is uh, is when it doesn't come from. Uh, kind of a pain point. And so oftentimes we'll meet with entrepreneurs that, uh, that have, you know, read about this emerging market uh, in, a, in a recent McKinsey study or, uh, or some other kind of, uh, you know, industry publication, and they see, gosh, you know, the on-demand economy uh, is is you know today a seven billion dollar market and set to explode to a twenty four billion dollar market, and so they think, what could I do in the get my the-
0: piece of the pie? Yeah,
1: and 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 therefore they come in, they have all the right statistics. It's compounding at X rate. It's growing. It's underserved in the U.S. There's no other competitors that are doing it. But guess what? They're they're not really doing it the right reason They're, they they, they the, the genesis behind the business was born out of something that was opportunistic and startups are just hard I mean I've never we've I've yet to invest in a startup business that hasn't gone through some struggles and it's during those difficult periods where that really matters because the people that got into it opportunistically are the first to give up right they're the first to say, gosh, this was really because they're they at,
0: they at a new McKinsey survey
1: <laughs> exactly <laughs> I, they didn 't talk about this part, the hard part in the McKinsey study. Yeah. It only talked about you know kind of the upside, but it's the folks that came in there that you know uh, you know they come in they kind of talk about the personal struggle you know i've been i've, I've had an allergy uh, or a family member." And I just, you know, I looked at the options of what was out there and nothing really great existed. And I just, I've decided to like make this my mission. Oh, and by the way, there's a couple of studies who, who, who who kind of talk about this as being growing market. Maybe they're right. Maybe they're wrong. Doesn't matter to me. And so the negative screen there is really kind of like, what is the driving force? Because that that tends to really play a key role during the down
0: periods, during the, the difficult periods of a startup. What other that seems like the perfect piece of advice for an entrepreneur is don't don't do something for money. Um, that can be part of the motivation, but do it because it's some something you're deeply passionate about. That seems like easy advice to give, but it but it hard to follow. What other advice? For entrepreneurs would you have, and maybe even specifically those that are trying to engage with, with the venture world, with um, allocators that, that, that might fund their business? What, mm-hmm. what, what are things that they can do to improve their, their options? Yeah. Their
1: um, you know, one, one thing that comes to mind is most people that I've had the opportunity to either meet or learn from or even read about who have been massively successful share one characteristic which is they pursued something and became great at it before it was mainstream and so one piece of advice I would give people or folks is kind of what is that passion point that you have that's not necessarily popular or hot like once McKinsey writes a report about it it, I don't know if it's too late but it's you know i think it's your your opportunity set is actually somewhat smaller it's kind of it's the folks that like you know i mean to be provocative you know it's it's the it's the the trombone player who you know just loved it and like went so deep into the trombone and the history of the trombone and despite like that was not the cool instrument everybody was into the jazz saxophone and like you know and that was the hot instrument but you know the young man or woman you know just trombone was their thing and then lo and behold the world shifts to looking at like trombones all of a sudden trombones are the big mainstream hit and you're you've been for the last decade practicing the trombone because that's your passion point so I almost think like finding the things that you know kind of energize you that may not be popular. Like if, if what we're talking about in today's investment world is the sharing economy or on demand economy or fintech or fill in the blank, like I, I would almost force yourself to try and think about what are the things that really interest you that aren't aren't there and to like and push you into that territory. I think that's If I was starting a new business today, I would really be thinking a lot about kind of what could I be the best at that isn't necessarily like the sun hasn't
0: shined on it yet. Mm. You know, that that seems like it could be also applicable to people that that are not not everyone could be an entrepreneur. It's a huge risk to take. But even within an established business or or career, there's going to be, you know, 15 elements of your job. And it seems like that applies there, too, that if there's you know, some aspect of whatever, whatever it is that you do that may not be the, you know, the hot dot um, but, but you're really good at, it, it probably works out the same way. Um, there's this uh, a writer who will be on the show um, who I've already taped the interview with named Kevin Simler, who's a really wonderful, wonderful essayist. Um, he used to work for Palantir, so you know, early engineer at Palantir, tons of experience there, and he writes a lot about startups as a frontier, like a, like a Westward Ho frontier, um, where you're at the edge of something and sort of feeling it out without any rules. And that, that seems like it's only possible with that, with that passion. What a, what a great bit of advice. What, what's your biggest miss ever?
1: Um, Hmm. Another investor named David Shen, who was an early Yahoo employee, uh, an angel investor showed me uber um, at their seed round and um and ironically i had i'd written a business plan for a car sharing business years earlier and um and and the round was was closing relatively quickly and i hadn't met uh the founders yet and so i told david you know thanks but no thanks mm-hmm. uh, but yeah that's certainly from a financial perspective uh, you yeah, that, that was, that's, that's turned into a, uh, an interesting business. Um, but, you know, missed a lot. I mean, you know, have, have been fortunate to, to see, you know, so, so many businesses early on, you know, that it's, it's almost hard and painful to like dredge those things up. But, you know, you learn from those, right? So we, we, you know, then became an early investor in Lyft and, and uh, have been a big supporter of theirs. And, you know, so, yeah, that, one, that one's probably the one that... that uh, That's I a headline ...slipped
0: one. away. <laughs> your, your, your new website, which is really cool, I recommend people check it out, we'll link to it, has some categories of kind of themes that you're looking at, and, and those are cities, money, consumer, kids, and health, which is a neat, neat collection. Maybe pick one of those um, and describe what that category means. Specifically, um, obviously you've identified maybe something that you think is changing... Where startups can uh, benefit from that from that changing landscape, but I'd love to hear kind of how I love that idea of the categories maybe maybe just understand one of them as yeah an yeah, so the categories so uh kind of maybe two things one
1: is the categories was essentially a uh an evolution of of collaborative funds thesis, right so we talked a, a bunch about this intersection of for profit and for good um but, you know, since starting the fund roughly six years ago, you know, the world has, has evolved and just kind of that very broad lens of that intersection, uh, you know, felt almost too broad uh, because more and more I think businesses are, are mission-driven and, and, and kind of articulating their values. Um, and so it, it, was, it was no longer kind of a, a small subset of startups, but, you know, almost every startup we're seeing these days Really really kind of touts that as being a key element, so it's like, well, shoot, you know how, how do we make our filter a little bit tighter and and we ultimately arrived at like where where are the areas that we're most passionate about that we we think have the greatest opportunities and that's how we arrived at those categories so so you know, so that's kind of you know a, a small baby step in collaborative funds evolution, um, you know the category that I would probably you know. I don't know, speak to first is is consumer. And by consumer, really talking about consumer product goods and retail. And so, you know, we've 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 just seen a big shift uh, you know in in the CPG space, you know, over over the last several years that I think we're still at the very kind of early stages of. We're at the onset of, of this tidal wave, which is a shift from the kind of mega corporation industrialized produced goods to smaller more independent craft authentic brands and products which you know consumers are demanding um, you know we talked a little bit about milk earlier um, you know it's 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 a space that is so large i mean the cbg space is just orders of magnitude larger than even the technology space um, it just and it's it's growing um, and so every single category within CBG uh, from, you know, fashion, hygiene, food, beverage, etc., cetera, is going through a, a, a large change. And you're seeing that the, the big monolithic organizations are having a hard time growing. And so they're, u- they're using kind of investing as well as mergers and acquisitions to kind of fuel their growth. And whether it's, you know, brands like Honest Tea... Which you know, Coca-Cola ended up acquiring, or it's, gosh, I mean, there's there's so many. Crave Jerky, Plum Organics, uh, you know, you name it. Um, you know, if, you, if you're able to to show the right amount of traction and 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 kind of consumer mindshare, you become a, a very attractive. Uh, acquisition target uh, to these large organizations. And we're seeing the size of those acquisitions increase, right? So, you know, most recently, you know, Dollar Shave Club was acquired uh, for a billion dollars by Unilever. Um, and so the, these businesses are able to utilize kind of existing technologies to, you know, I like to use the term, scratch and itch with the kind of younger consumer and start to, to take, to take uh, market share and that's just, that's changing the dynamics of that industry. Um, so that's a category we're, we're really interested in. We've invested, you know, pretty heavily in it. We've, you know, Ripple Foods, invested in Good Eggs, invested in Simply Gum, invested in Hampton Creek Foods, and, and a whole host of others. Um, and, and even on the retail side, invested in Sweet Green, which is a kind of a, a, a salad chain. We invested in Blue Bottle Coffee. Um, so kind of interested in this, uh, kind of next-generation consumer, product
0: good, or retail business. Um, and so that's one of the categories that we're most interested in. To, to draw you another public market analogy, the, the buy decision is often easier than the sell decision or when to sell. And so it's interesting to hear you say that a strategy is partially informed by this, this phenomenon outside of the business, which is these big companies maybe getting a little scared and being very acquisitive, right? What a neat environment to pass that villain test in. Uh, Pretty neat. So last couple of questions. Um, The first is something I ask everybody, which is what I'm most fascinated with about people, which is your daily routine. Um, So thinking about this as sort of like a wax on wax off type approach, um, what are the things that you feel important to do? It doesn't have to be every day, uh, but most days that kind of makes up, makes up your daily routine. Yeah, I would say,
1: so exercise is the first thing that comes to mind. I, I just, I fundamentally, I'm a I'm a believer in kind of strong body, strong mind. And so whether it's push-ups or it's a simple jog or walk in the park um, or it's, a, a, you know, a really rigorous workout routine, I try to find time to exercise every single day. I just think it's it's critical to mental health and every, and every other facet um, of, of life Uh you know, and, and and I would say more recently, kind of you know meditation, um, and that's that's a word that I think for for a period of time I thought oh, you know I don't even know what that means, and um, and ironically where I first kind of felt the benefits of it was during exercise, and so you know going for a run, giving kind of my brain a chance to to just decompress and uh, think about how we're doing as a business and as a team and where are the things that I want to achieve on a personal level, as well as our group, um, you know, that, that kind of that opportunity to just slow down and breathe and, and think is, is so important. So I think it's, you know, the, the the two things that I find, you know, critical almost on a daily basis is making sure that there's some time for exercise and, and, and meditation, um, you know, in, in whatever form kind of works for you. Um, but
0: those, those two are the the ones that immediately come to mind. Sometimes certainly working out, you know, having a trainer can help. Um, what about meditation? How did, how do you do it? And how did you get into it? And did you have help? Did you, whether it's just reading about it or actually, you know, going to, to lessons, how did you get into
1: it? Yeah. Uh, you know, I got into it, I think, you know, kind of two ways. One, one actually is my wife and I think she's, She's encouraged me to read about it and learn about it, and she's, um, you know, she's she holds me accountable, and so that element, you know, I, I think it's so different for each of us. Um, you know, I think that there's a number of new mobile apps that Headspace and others that are kind of creating a framework for people to find time to meditate and providing some you know, kind of instructions, um, there, there are some kind of universal elements to it, um, such as breathing, but I, you know, I find that it, it really is different for everyone. Um, you know, what's, what's meditative for me is probably different from, you know, from others. And so it's, it's, it's learning kind of how to listen to yourself and what, what kind of, you know, they, people talk a lot about being introverted versus extroverted and what are the things that kind of re- re-energize you or recharge your battery versus what are the things that are extractive. I think that's, that's the key to finding, you know, what I think of as meditation or, or what are the things that are going to enable you to kind of recharge your battery. Um, and that, that's going to be different.
0: Yeah. yeah, so different for each person. Um, what is your most memorable individual day as a venture capitalist? Interesting.
1: Well, gosh... I think maybe the day that we got started, uh, you know, my background, as as I mentioned previously, I would never managed other people's money, um, and and don't have a traditional background in finance, um, and so we were kind of the, you know, the venture fund that you know was, despite the odds, kind of the scrappy underdog, um, and just. The day that we closed our first fund, which was actually in November of 2010, so we're coming up on our six-year anniversary, you know, felt felt like just a, a huge milestone. and so just of that feeling of um, complete and utter gratitude that anyone would kind of trust me and us to to have a shot at this. I think outweighs almost anything else I can think of. I mean. I, I do think the job of a venture capitalist is to serve entrepreneurs. Uh, and so first and foremost, um, and I think if you do that well, you can generate fantastic returns for your investors. And I, you know, there's countless uh, you know, uh, examples of that along the way of the you know, 70 plus investments we've made where we've just had the opportunity to work with some incredible entrepreneurs. But I think that initial, that first page of our of our, you know, of the book that we're writing um, is the one that jumps out.
0: You mentioned the word gratitude, so maybe my favorite question is what is the kindest thing that anyone's ever done for you?
1: Yeah, I think outside of the 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 just very tangible way of trusting me with their capital, I think supporting, supporting us through challenging times, right? So, you know, one of our investors told me early on, you know, actually prior to him investing, said, Craig, I'm, I'm going to make an investment in you with one condition. And I said, okay, what, what's that? He said, don't shine the turd. And I said, what, what, what does that even mean? Um, and he said, if something, can I use bad language? Oh, yeah. if, no. if something shitty happens, I'm a grown up, I've been there, done it, I've been successful in business, I know how these things go, tell me. Because if it's shitty, it's eventually gonna smell. And you can only polish that for so long. So hiding it, you know, treating us with white gloves, or treating me with white gloves, like, is not going to work. I want you to make a pledge that when something doesn't go right, like, I want to be the first to know about it. And I think that was an incredibly, that was maybe the best gift, because it gave me then permission, frankly, to be totally transparent about not just the ups, which is what you want to share with your investors, right? You want to tell them, gosh, you know, this company is doing fantastically well and we're on track to create really positive returns. But in reality, there's ups and downs. And so having the permission to, to kind of share the downs and, and the insecurities that come along with it, I think is probably the most generous thing that uh, any of, any of uh, our group has
0: done. Well, in an episode filled with uh, fantastic advice, I think Don't Shine the Turd is is my favorite. So thank you one there. I really appreciate all your time. This has been a blast. Awesome. Thank you so much. Hey, everyone. Patrick here again. To find more episodes of Invest Like the Best, go to InvestorFieldGuide.com forward slash podcast. If you're a book lover, you can also sign up for my book club at InvestorFieldGuide.com forward slash book club.